When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Joe Davis, and you're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic, and damn straight, that was Dodger broadcaster Joe Davis introducing our episode, which is number 208, and it's opening day as we record this, and we're going to talk about baseball, but don't worry, it'll be the fifth segment. Indeed, it will be it will be comfortably at the end of the podcast and you can choose how much or how little to listen to our conversation with Joe Davis, which is a really a good conversation. And we do indeed talk about the television aspect of things. If you've ever wanted to know how it works to to be in a booth, to be a partner on a a game calling activity. That's a strange way of putting it, but it is absolutely the thing I mean to say. Uh, so, yes, I, I think and it is not, you know, it's not a 45 or 50 minute conversation. So come on, give it a listen. It's good stuff. And and Joe Davis is good people. We appreciate him joining us. Uh, timed to opening day. You'll recall such previous opening day timed conversations as our chat with Hank Azaria about Brockmire and uh, also our chat with Ken Burns, uh, who who came in and chatted along with Lynn Novick. But then we talked baseball. What episodes were those, Leslie? I assume they were April of several years. Well, Hank Azaria joined us for Brockmire on my birthday, April 30th, 2020, that would be in episode 68, recorded in the thick of quarantine. That was a weird day, I remember. Um, and then Ken Burns, we had on for not one, but two segments in episode 114. That was from April 2nd, 2021. And this one, yeah, you said Joe Davis. You know, he's a good guy. I've, I've uh, been blessed to be able to interview him a couple times now. And this is a really great interview. I'm obviously biased, but he's talking all about the World Baseball Classic with Shohei Otani striking out Mike Trout to win it all. It was an incredible baseball moment. He opens up about calling his first World Series for Fox last fall. And uh, for those diehard Dodger fans like me, what it was like for him to actually break the news of Vince Gulley's passing during a Dodger broadcast against the Giants, no less. So... Obviously, we are aware that not all of our friends of the five are interested in baseball. So, yeah, look for that interview to come up after the Critics' Corner. Let's get down to business. Number one. Speaking of baseball, we're going to lead up first, up first in headlines. And just in time for baseball season comes the news that Apple is teaming with Saturday Night Live guru Lorne Michaels to develop a scripted series about Yankee Hall of Famer Lou Gehrig, also known as the Iron Horse, also known as... The guy who I modeled my work ethic after. So one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> I haven't played in 2,130 straight games, but I've certainly written more than 2,130 stories in a year. Well, you are absolutely an iron horse of 
television journalism, I would not necessarily have known that he was the man after whom you'd modeled your work ethic. But sure, why true. not? Um, I've, been, I've been a diehard Luke Garrick fan since I was a little kid and fell in love with baseball. And here I would have thought that somewhat growing up with Cal Ripken in the process of his own eventually 2600 game uh played streak would would make him the person who you modeled your work ethic after but what yeah but ripkin modeled his after garrick's so. i understand but on the other hand it, while the listeners might think that you're somewhat old i don't think that the listeners think that you grew up watching lou garrick that no, is all that. i'm I mean, saying I, I i do turn 49 in april so I'm not that old, but I have a diehard <laughs> respect for the game's all-time grades, and Lou Gehrig is right up there, and number one in my book. It's like Lou Gehrig and Jackie, boom, right there. Number one and a cl very, very close number two. I'm still a little curious as to why anyone thinks that's a thing that a broader television audience actually wants or needs, but am I curious and would I watch it? Sure, why not? Yeah, it was previously developed as a movie, so people did think that it was going to be suited for the big screen at some point that was back in 2017 when it was developed without michael's attached but uh yeah it's based based on the book the life and times of lou gehrig which is an excellent read if you haven't picked it up and you're a baseball fan um but yeah enough about this let's let's keep keep the show going i could talk about baseball and lou gehrig all day we're well aware. It's been a busy week on the Star Trek front. Uh, Paramount Plus has ordered the long gestating Starfleet Academy to series. That one at some point was being uh, developed by Josh Schwartz, wasn't it? I, I feel as if that was one of several. Yeah, he is no longer attached. So it's now uh, Alex Kurtzman, who, of course, captains the, the Star Trek franchise and the showrunner of Nancy Drew. Sure, why not? Obviously and courting a younger demo with that one. And they have also renewed Star Trek Strange New Worlds and the animated comedy Lower Decks for additional seasons. Yeah, it's actually been quite a busy week on the renewal front, and we can expand more on that later. But uh, let's get started here. Netflix has handed out a speedy second season renewal to Sean Ryan's breakout series, The Night Agent, and announced that stalker drama You will end with its fifth season as showrunner Sarah Gamble hands over the show to two of her top exec producers. Over at CBS, they've renewed Blue Bloods for its 14th season as the cast and producers agreed to take what sources say is a 25% salary reduction to keep the show on the air. Over at Freeform, they revealed that the previously announced sixth season of Grownish would be its last that brings an end to Kenya Barris's Ish franchise when the episode, the final episodes will air in 2024. Over at ABC, they've renewed Grey's Anatomy for its 20th season. That's right, that show's still on. And installed a new showrunner to replace Krista Vernoff. Uh, her name is Medical Meg. You can find her on Twitter. She's one of the good ones and has been in Shondaland for quite some time. Elsewhere, sources tell THR that the previous announced 12th season of HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm will be its last again, though star and creator Larry David can always change his mind again. That is indeed a lot of information and several of it relating to people who have been on recent episodes of the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm still buzzing about our conversation with Sean Ryan last week. That was, I think, one of the most insightful interviews we've done in a very long time, not just about the night agent, but WGA, TV in general, broadcast. He's a great interview. It was a great conversation, and that's why we gave over most of last week's podcast to it. Uh, I do not require that you go back to your massive 
Google Doc to tell me what week we had Sean Ryan on. It was last week. And Sarah Gamble was, of course, on our podcast on episode 201. So, uh, yeah. And as for Curb Your Enthusiasm, it will only be over when it's over. I, I don't know what else to say about that. Is that is that it's always a thing that they say it's, you know, if he has more stories, they'll let him tell more stories. On the other hand, his actual HBO deal is running out. So at least that's right. at this moment, it's the end. Yeah. Anyway. But it is interesting to, you know, with all these renewals, um, especially on the broadcast side, a lot of these broadcast shows, if you can go back and listen to Susan Rovner talking about this in our 200th episode, a lot of these shows, especially for broadcast, are going to keep going. Basically, they'll, they'll probably take like a couple of days of hiatus instead of the, the week and weeks and months long break in between seasons. They're going to keep writing with the idea of keeping the show going and getting episodes in the can and at least scripts in, in you know, banks in case there is a writer's strike. So in, in, at, that would start May 1st. So again, the typical hiatus period is over the summer. Most writer's rooms don't regroup until around the 4th of July. But yeah, a lot of these big hits, it's fair to expect that they will keep their rooms running. On the new series front, Netflix has picked up an adaptation of the Denzel Washington thriller Man on Fire, which will be run by Lone Star and Awake creator Kyle Killen. And Apple has set Jessica Chastain to star in the limited series The Savant, inspired by the Cosmo feature about a woman whose job it is to prevent mass shootings. Elsewhere, The Handmaid's Tale boss Bruce Miller and former TV's top five guest Bruce Miller is stepping down to focus on sequel The Testaments. In his place, longtime exec producers Eric Tuckman and Yalin Chang will take over day-to-day -day oversight for the final season of Hulu's Emmy-winning drama. You can go back and listen to our interview with Miller about juggling both The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments. That'd be in episode 183. In news relating to people who haven't appeared on the TV's Top 5 podcast, but are invited if they're ever, you know, in the mood, uh, X-Files creator Chris Carter said on a podcast that Black Panther director Ryan Coogler is pondering whatever the blazes that means. It was a very, very vague uh, interview in which he basically said one sentence of something, and then it became a news cycle for a week, God bless, uh, that he is considering a diverse update of the X-Files. Why not? <laughs> I mean, is that something that we need? It's not something that in any way seems like a problem to me. The only reason why I'm not sure that we need it is because, well, we don't need it because basically that's kind of what evil on Paramount Plus already is. It you know, it's obviously not technically a uh, an X-Files anything, but, you know, it's a diverse cast of one person's a skeptic, one person's a believer, one person's a whatever. It's all it's it's from the same vein and it's already a pretty terrific show that already exists on Paramount Plus. But Ryan Coogler is a talented person. And if he actually had an idea to want to continue the X-Files franchise, why the heck not? I think, you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he does have a deal with Onyx Collective. That's uh, the diversity uh, studio initiative headed by former Freeborn president Tara Duncan. Uh, they obviously, Disney obviously owns the rights to the X-Files that came over when in, in the big Fox deal from a few years ago. But wouldn't, I mean, do you need the title of this one? I mean, the comparisons, even if this does happen and it's 
like who the hell knows like how realistic this is. But even if it were to happen, the comparisons to the original are going to be endless. I mean, that's a, a cult favorite. So why not just do something different in the same vein? Why do you need to wrap it in IP when when you've when you've got a creative auspice like like Kugler attached? Several things. A X Files not a cult series. That was a massive mainstream hit. That was that was that re- retains a cult following. It retains a huge following because people grew up on it. It's a hit. It was that was just a massive successful show that was also nominated for Emmys, won Emmys, uh, launched the careers of of countless various uh, showrunners or contributed to the launching of careers. So people like Howard Gordon and Vince Gilligan, etc. Um, so. Yeah, but it, look, it's it's a, it's a brand, and uh, somebody on this podcast has repeatedly talked about the importance of IP and brands, so that doesn't surprise me. But also, whatever it is that the X-Files is or was, the X-Files has been so many different things that you can't really desecrate what it is. So obviously, there's the first X number of years, X as a pun, I guess, in which it was David Duchovny and and Gillian Anderson, and it was that show. But also, there were the Robert Patrick Annabeth Gish years. There were two movies, one of which is basically unwatchable, and the other one is slightly more watchable. It also came back as a six-episode limited series in which there were both episodes that were fantastic and episodes that were really, really not good. So, so to me, there's no reason not to. If you think that there is still value to the franchise, sure, why not stick the X Files name in front of it? Because you're not gonna you're not gonna do something less memorable than the least memorable parts of the franchise, and you're probably not gonna do anything more memorable than the most memorable. So you can kind of tuck yourself in and find your own corner. I I see no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, some people, though, will always be of the opinion that X-Files means David and Jillian, and that's what it is. So, and this would not be that. And, but again, Ryan Coogler, talented person, if he wants to do it, he will. Continuing on with headlines, kind of some housekeeping stuff here. Bachelor creator Mike Fleiss is leaving the ABC and Warner Brothers franchise after a two-decade run, handing over showrunning duties on the franchise to a new trio Over at Amazon, they've signed formal Marvel chief creative officer and formal Marvel Comics editor-in-chief Joe Quesada to develop films and TV series based on new and existing comic book characters. Amazon, you'll recall, does have a deal with Sony for its Marvel portion of the library that gives its right, get, that gives Amazon rights to more than 900 characters. I would bet Joe Quesada is very familiar with, well, most of them. So. Yeah, I, I would, some interesting moves with some key players, key franchise people there. I would also take that bet that Joe Casada is familiar with most of them. Um, and wrapping things up in casting, Game of Thrones veteran Lena Headey will star in Kurt Sutter's Netflix Western The Abandons. That sounds like a match. Indeed. Yes. And this wraps up this week in TV headlines. Up next. Number two. No April Fool's Day joke here. You've got new seasons of Succession and Yellow Jackets that premiered in March. And coming up in our April TV segment, final seasons of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Barry. Dan, there is, I would say, I mean, I'm looking at this master list that you put together. And there's a lot of of documentaries, a lot of unscripted stuff. But it to me, at least at first blush, it doesn't feel nearly as jam-packed as March was. What, what's your impression? 
I think that it doesn't have basically once you <laughs> once you have March ending with the the clash of the titans with Succession and Yellow Jackets, it's pretty hard for anything to compete with that. I think in terms of volume, there's no question that April is every bit the equal of March. There's there's no diminishing. And in terms of the pinnacles, I don't think that you're lacking for things that are very clearly uh, prestige to the to the nth degree. So whether or not Marvelous Mrs. Maisel at this point has the same cachet that it had in its first season or two, I think the simple answer is no, it no. clearly does not. It's it's kind of slinking off or not really maybe slinking off, but it's it's going quietly. quietly yeah. Exactly. It is quietly exiting. So. That is that is fine, uh, but Barry is not so quietly exiting. Uh, there was a trailer that came out a day or two ago, and everyone was screen grabbing that like like crazy. And and we've talked about the end of Barry, and we've talked about the idea that that was a show that never had an engine that was intended to to go forever. Uh, but yeah, no. If you look at if you look at this month, there are the couple huge shows that are ending. There are also some very, very potentially buzzy shows from very, very powerful people. Uh, many of them are former TV's top five guests, so we'll get to to mention that. Um, you, you love to hear it. And and then just lots of of shows that are potentially interesting, and and half of them will turn out to be nothing, and two or three of the things that we probably don't mention here will probably turn out to be massive hits. But anyway, so yeah, run run through some of the stuff for the kids, Leslie. Yeah, so you've got Dave Season 3 on FXX, Schmigadoon Season 2 over on Apple, Beef on Netflix, which if you that's definitely going to be one of the buzzier shows of the month. Paramount Plus is going back to Rydell High with Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. Freebie, Freebie, is doing something a little bit different with a show called Jury Duty. Hulu has Tiny Beautiful Things. Netflix launches Transatlantic. Jeremy Renner's Renovations debuts on Disney+. Plus. You've got the second season of Freeform's Single Drunk Female. One of my favorite punchlines, Florida Man. Not because of the show, but just because of the nature of jokes about Florida Man headlines over on Netflix. Obsession? Is that right? It is absolutely a TV show Obs that exists. Obsession on Netflix. I'm not sure what that is. Then you've got season two of Blind Spotting. You've got the new season of A Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO. Apple has The Last Thing He Told Me. We've talked about the final season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. Final season of Barry on HBO. Then you've got The Diplomat at Netflix. The new Damon Lindelof show, Mrs. Davis on Peacock. That's an interesting one. I've seen the first two on that one. Uh, Rachel Weiss playing very different twins in Dead Ringers for Amazon. Season two of one of the great hidden gems of the last couple years, Somebody Somewhere, that's on HBO. The second season of From on MGM+, Saint X on Hulu. Comedy Central returns Aquafina is Nora from Queens after a long hiatus. Then you've got the very last Late 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 Show on CBS. Uh, the new version of Candy, this one's called Love and Death on HBO Max. Season two of Sweet Tooth on Netflix. Amazon's wickedly big budget Citadel and the fatal attraction redo on Paramount plus. It's a lot of different stuff. Some YA stuff there with like Greece. You've got some really, really popular shows that just never really cut through in terms of ratings with like the Aquafina show. 
I mean, honestly, of this list, what I'm most excited to see is the second season of Somebody Somewhere. And that's viable. There's there really is there's there's no lack of something for everybody uh, in this in this particular month. And there are definitely things that I'm looking forward to to a wide variety of of levels. I'm I'm very curious about Citadel. We've talked about it a couple times. I think we just talked about it last week. The sort of the idea of of attempting to build from scratch a franchise based on an original idea is either the chance to blow a tremendous amount of money or to do something that actually is ambitious and workable. And having seen zero seconds of it, I I don't know. Uh, but there are look, Mrs. Davis. It's a new show co-created by Damon Lindelof. I I will always be very very curious to see something like that. Uh, Dead Ringers is a a tremendous movie. The David Cronenberg movie just an outrageously good performance from Jeremy Irons in it. There is, there is almost no chance that Rachel Weisz will not be interesting to watch in that show. I cannot imagine a circumstance in which that is not interesting. Um, and then there's lots of sort of littler shows that I like very much or love. Uh, Dave is not a littler show because I've been talking obsessively about that for a couple of years. And so I'll do it again in Critics Corner here. But something like Single Drunk Female, the first season was just a, was just a really, really good show. And uh, I'm curious to see more episodes of it because why not? It just didn't get quite the buzz it could have. Blind spotting. We had Raphael Casal roughly a year ago as guest on the podcast. He was a great guest. He was he was battling a cold, but uh, did a very, very good job of being wonderfully candid. We we appreciated that. You've got people coming back to TV after absences, so The Diplomat returns Carrie Russell to TV. I will always be curious to check that out. Um, and and then you've got IP. Well, speaking of shows that didn't really catch on, that I still liked a tremendous amount. Sweet Tooth was a show that I I really just enjoyed. I it's not the kind of show that I was ever going to put on a top ten list or something. But if you said, "Hey Dan, you enjoy Sweet Tooth," I would say. Yes, very much. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Just lots and lots of potentially good stuff. On the other hand, if you put it next to a month that had Yellow Jackets and Succession premiering on the same day, it's it's not going to be <laughs> it's not going to be quite the same. And of course, all these new shows are comp- are competing with new episodes of not only Yellow Jackets and Succession, but also Ted Lasso. So. It's going to get extremely crowded in the coming weeks. And as we and as we mentioned over and over again, so much of this is based on on Emmy whatever. And and so much of the scheduling of things is what is the point at which we can put this on the schedule where it will be over by May 31st. And so some of these shows will be binge shows. Some of these shows are, are shorter runs. I think that Dead Ringers is only uh, six episodes. So, you know, you, you premiere it on April 21st. It's. Easily done in time for Emmy consideration, and again, it seems hard to imagine racial vice at not be at least not being in a conversation. Uh, so yeah, some of these are some of these are bingey type shows, and some of them obviously aren't going to be Emmy contenders. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of random and semi random IP. I'll have to be convinced on what Fatal Attraction looks like as a television show, but I'm I'm not uncurious. Uh, Grease the Rise of the Pink Ladies, not necessarily so much aimed at me, demographically speaking, but 
it's it's there, and I assume people will be <laughs> maybe interested in it. Though the vibe I got from the trailer was somewhat, unfortunately, similar to the Heather's series, which was borderline unwatchable, and yet I watched five or six episodes of it. So, you know, yes. But April is going to be madness. And as we all know, the television show that Leslie is really looking forward to most is not somebody somewhere. It's the Dodgers every single night of the week. So <laughs> it's time for Dodger baseball. I'm very excited about opening day. We're, we're aware. We, we, we yeah, know. Might have mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> Number three. Up next, it's time for our mailbag segment. A reminder, if you have questions that you would like to hear Dan and I discuss on the podcast, drop us a line at TV's Top 5. That's the numeral 5 at THR.com. We're going to try and keep doing these at least once a month. So our first question with the Oscars over, listener KM ponders, what if? What if the Emmys didn't categorize things by comedy or drama genre? Would this truly guarantee that only the best get nominated? Dan, this is a very you question. Uh, the, the simple first part of the answer is to the second part of the question. Would this truly guarantee that only the best get nominated? The answer, of course, is no, because you're always going to deal with the you're always going to deal with the vagaries of a, a subjective award system. So, no, it absolutely wouldn't. It's tough. I don't look. I, I will incessantly complain over and over again as long as it's relevant and even probably if it isn't relevant about shows being miscategorized as as drama or comedy. And I'm sure that some listeners find it amusing. Other listeners find it insufferable. And some listeners probably have just made a drinking game about it and are attempting to get alcohol poisoning. And that's entirely fine. I will I will bang the drum that Succession is a comedy and White Lotus is a comedy forever and ever and ever. There's, I don't know. This is one of those things where I am very good at complaining, but not so great at coming up with solutions. Uh, because the solutions are all out there and they're all imperfect solutions. So some people I mean, will. Art is so subjective. How are, I mean, that's really what this boils down to. Well, Any no, awards conversation that, is going to That's down what the that. second part boils down to is that, is that you're never going to get it right. So that's fine. You'll get it right to varying degrees, but you will never get a situation in which the best 10 shows are the shows that are winning Emmy Awards because not everyone's top 10 list are the same, and that's what's glorious. But you hear all of the different solutions for the fungibility of genre categorization, and they're all a mess to different degrees. So there's the dramedy solution. Do we propose a category that's a dramedy? Uh, well, just about every good show on TV would be in the drama ca dramedy category because as every smart person will tell you, in in life there is both drama and there is comedy and it, an hour-long drama that has no comedy in it whatsoever is really not a good thing. And even something where it would be easy to categorize. So let's just say, okay, The Crown, absolutely a drama. That is, that is not a dramedy. Are there funny things in it? Yes. But, so okay. But no, you're, you're not going to get that as a solution. You're just going to end up with a third different blob that will probably have everything good in it. So that's one potential solution. Potential solution two is half-hour categorization versus hour categorization. I think I think that's a little bit 
clearer or better, and at least you're saying, okay, we're just judging this by time, or we're not attempting to categorize it based on tone. Time is empirical, tone is not. Um, but already there, you're getting into things like the fact that the current season of Ted Lasso, every episode has been between 44 and, uh, and 50 minutes. So, <laughs> so what exactly is that? I don't have an answer. So again, I don't think it's the solution. Then you've got a third choice. And this is the other thing is that the Emmys are not going to reduce the number of awards they give because there are 600 plus television shows. So the solution to honoring them, it's a tough solution to say that the solution is to uh, is to make fewer awards. Uh, Two Emmys. Exactly. The first half of the year for the Emmys, the second half of the year for the Emmys, and they go head to head. I don't, I'll say again, I don't think that's the solution, nor, however, do I think that the solution is like what the uh, the Critics' Choice Awards do, where they break it down into so many different secondary categories that it really becomes an everybody gets a trophy kind of thing, where they're doing a broadcast, cable, streaming, and they do each category with those, and then they do action show, sci-fi show whatever, and they do each version of those. And at that point, it's 600 shows in the world and 200 of them are getting nominated for things. And that's ridiculous. So I don't have the solution here. I just know that the way that the system currently works does not encompass tonal gradations particularly well, unfortunately. So I, w I wish there were a clearer answer to that question or a better answer to that question. I just know that the current system doesn't work and that it requires refinements. And Emmy voters, unfortunately, not Emmy voters, rather, the TV Academy is a little bit resident, uh, is a little bit reticent to make the changes that need to be made as a as the medium changes. So up next, Munib asks about the new norm for non-broadcast shows taking more than a year for the new seasons to air. Like, for example, The Last of Us not returning until 2025. While it was understandable during the 2020 and 2021 years due to COVID, it seems a lot to put the burden on viewers to remember the previous season's events from a while ago, and thus a good way to lose viewership momentum along the way. Yeah, well, you're not wrong. I mean, obviously you, you lose momentum and it's been, this isn't an, a new phenomenon. This isn't something that was impacted by COVID. This is something that existed long before the COVID added time to some of these, the, you know, to the return of some of these major shows. But when you're spending north of 125 million on like a show like House of the Dragon, I, I think Last of Us is similarly budgeted. You're going to take your time to get it right because that's a huge miss if you spend that much money and you don't get something good out of it, right? Especially if you're HBO. I mean, as far as everything else and the financial burden and the burden of of viewers trying to remember everything. Well, that's where outlets like The Hollywood Reporter come in. We've got tons of succession content. This is like turning into a self-serving segment, but I really didn't mean it to. But I mean, for major shows that have been off the air for a long time, everyone's going to have a refresher. HBO is probably going to advertise on their homepage or HBO Max. When you open it up, it's like, hey, Succession's back. Rewatch the first couple seasons, you know, right here. Plus, they do the the previously on stuff in case you're too lazy to read anything or go back and rewatch anything. 
But yeah, it's it's not uncommon for, for major shows to be off the air for more than a year because these productions are complex in addition to being expensive. You got to get the creative right. I mean, look at what HBO did with the original Game of Thrones pilot. They they tossed it and did it and, and started over. I mean, on broadcast, CBS did the same thing with Big Bang Theory. But it's like when you're looking at at development, even the broadcast networks, we've talked about this a lot in the past year, broadcast networks have shifted to year-round development because they realize that the idea of picking up a script in January, casting it, getting a stage, getting a director, shooting it, reviewing it, testing it, et cetera, and then making a series order decision in four and a half months, that's not really a good way to make television. So now they're adopting the cable and streaming way. Obviously, some things are getting straight to series, but I mean, it's not uncommon. I mean, even a show like The Night Agent that, you know, we just talked to Sean Ryan about that. That was basically two years in the works. You know, there's a great story over on Deadline about how uh, the the development process really worked and how Sean Ryan tailored it based on to fit Netflix notes on how they could get it to a broad audience without starting it out broad to begin with. I mean, it, this is just our new reality. It takes time for big main, big shows that are very intricate and detailed to get right. You don't want to rush creators. You don't want to rush production. If you're investing that much money in it, it takes time. And yeah, it, it also takes money because it forces these networks and streamers to advertise again because you lose the you lose that momentum as you single out in the question. You know, with a broadcast show, it's like, you know, it's not rocket science. You can expect Grey's Anatomy and all the Dick Wolf shows back in September and they run until May. That's scheduled television for broadcast, which is on a completely different model. But when you look at, a, you know, a show like Succession, it takes time, right? You're not going to rush Jesse Armstrong, especially on what is going to be a final season. But you also know that the viewers are going to come back, right? And that that's the hope. And I think that's also why you're starting to see a lot of these streamers, especially, not even streamers, it's everyone. Most shows don't get past four seasons because not only do they get more expensive as they age, but it's harder to, to retain that viewership, right? Especially if it's off the air for a year and a half or more. So, yeah, not a new phenomenon, but it will continue to happen on uh, as more of these high profile shows come out. And and look, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to have, you know, to see these streamers kind of looking at a, at a model and saying, OK, this is a show that we could do every calendar year. But even Ted Lasso, you know, was off the air for more than a year at one point. Right. Like, I think it, it used to be like, you know, premiering in the first, you know, uh, I want to say in like October every year or something like that. I can't remember. But and then there was a delay, you know, with this season because it took a little bit longer to shoot. Right. I mean, that's this is just the reality of of peak TV. And, and the other thing that you didn't mention uh, is that. Obviously, acting actor schedules come into play as well. And so it becomes a thing of if you want to get whoever the big name people are. Sometimes you have to work around their schedules and sometimes big name actor X or Y is going to want to do eight episodes of a Hulu show. And that's great. But then they also want to do 10 episodes of an HBO Max show. And then you have to figure out how to make the schedules all work. So I, right. But that also that's, a, again, been a change that existed long before covid, where especially on a, a broadcast show, you had talent deals that were exclusive. And the idea that you could see the lead of your show you the old the old way of doing things used to be you, you you could do three episodes of anything else but the cap was three 
because they didn't want to basically have someone else using your the face of your franchise to promote some other new show that's invariably on a competitor, right? And But now all of that stuff's out the window, and now people are juggling two, three projects at a time. Obviously, that'll change with COVID, which imploded everybody's calendars, but... Yeah, it's 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 a completely different landscape with this with 600 TV shows in the works. Our next question comes from Abdul Aziz who asks about the future of the Game of Thrones franchise and how that compares to Marvel, Star Wars and DC considering HBO's slow process of developing new shows. Because at this time he thought we'd have 3 to 4 different Game of Thrones shows and the flagship ended in 2019 but we only have House of the Dragon. It, it's a good question, and it made me think about uh, uh, a prompt that was going around on Twitter this past week, which was discussing the idea of how many franchises at this exact moment are ascending franchises versus descending franchises, and how more franchises at this moment seem to be descending than ascending. Uh, but people were throwing out lots of kind of obvious things like John Wick. And a lot of the what I responded to that in my own head was, well, <laughs> everything is a franchise until you attempt to franchise it. And then you discover that it's actually really a franchise or it actually isn't a franchise. And so John Wick it's it, it's sort of um you know it's it's the cat in the box and whether or not the cat is dead or not uh it's it's very much a john wick is a franchise at this moment in large part because the only john wick things that have come out have been the john wick movies with keanu reeves and everyone knows well yes there's the ballerina with anna de armas and yes there's uh the continental with mel gibson on peacock and so those are kind of presumptive angles to a franchise but at this moment we don't know similarly bridgerton bridgerton is a franchise except that thus far Bridgerton has actually only been a two-season television show. There's the the Queen spinoff, and maybe it will be a huge hit, and maybe it will not, but until we see, it's not a franchise. Well, HBO wanted to make sure that whatever they did with Game of Thrones, <laughs> that they didn't kill the franchising of it immediately. And yeah, there's, so, there's too much at stake to get that exactly. shit wrong. And, and so... On one level, absolutely, I understand why the listener and why fans of the show would have been like, well, God, if this is the biggest show in the world, why do we not have seven, seven versions of it? And I guess the answer I would point to is look at what AMC has done with The Walking Dead. And it's just an imperfect version of franchising. Fear the Walking Dead is approaching its eighth or ninth season, which is kind of remarkable. Eighth and final, yeah. But that means absolutely it did successfully spin off. But then there have also been, I think, two additional spinoffs that made no ripple whatsoever. So, okay. And there's two more coming. It's endless ones coming. And so it's just going to keep bringing three out... More. Three more. Are, are you including the Michonne and, uh, and Andrew Yeah, Lincoln? the Rick and Michonne one. The the Daryl Dixon one, and, and then, then the, the Lauren Cohan and uh, 
Jeffrey Dean Morgan, one. which is so actually coming. So that one is that one's one that's on its way imminently, as opposed to the other two, which are varying degrees of on their way. So with Game of Thrones, they they obviously they had the initial bake off with scripts and pilots, and they picked up one of them and they made a very, very expensive pilot and they looked at it and they said, this isn't right. This isn't what we want to put out there. And I give them credit for that. So they took more time and then House of the Dragon came out and it was actually a success. Do I think it's a great show? Do I think it's anywhere near as good as the original Game of Thrones was in its first four or five seasons? No, not even close. But on the other hand, it is absolutely a success. And so now they will continue to try to find ways to expand, to expand, to expand. But yeah, and they're doing the Kit Harrington thing. They are. But the thing, the thing that makes sense is they didn't want to rush out four shows immediately where suddenly the franchise possibility of this could have been snuffed out instantly. If the next one down the pike, if the third Game of Thrones series tanks, that does not then mean that the franchise is dead. It means, okay, well, this one worked, this one didn't, now we move on. And, but the, and it still damages the franchise, though. It, it, I think it damages the brand, but I think it damages it still less than if they hadn't had proof that viewers would come out for a second one. I think that's the, that's the thing. They needed House of the Dragon to hit so that it wasn't a case where people only cared about the original flavor. In the same way, uh, it doesn't matter if both the ballerina and the continental are hits for John Wick to be a franchise, but it definitely matters that one of them be a success. Cause if both of them tank, then it just becomes a movie, a situation where people liked a movie with Keanu Reeves and none right. of the it, rest. It's of like it supernatural, right? How many times did Mark Pedowitz at the CW try to do a supernatural spinoff? And I mean, he got one this year. I mean, he's just not there to see it. But is the Winchesters resonating the same way that Supernatural is? I don't I don't really see it, but I'm also not I've aged out of that demo. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't see it either. And it's possible that it is. But at this point, the CW is just going through so many changes that it would just be impossible to say for sure. Uh, so the the listener brought up the Marvel movies. And basically, Marvel has reached the point where so many things have been successful in so many different forms and venues and theatrically and on different networks and all of that, that when something fails, it no longer jeopardizes an entire brand. So Iron Fist did not suddenly mean anything negatively about the Marvel brand. It was simply something that failed while other things were succeeded, succeeding. And that's the point that all of these franchises... I mean, it may have damaged the Marvel Netflix brand. I think it uh, well I think it did and I think it most particularly did in the sense that uh that it was all building towards the defenders and Iron Fist made it so that absolutely nobody cared about the thing that it was supposed to allegedly be building towards whereas uh, I still think the the individual shows that succeeded succeeded well enough like okay so they're just bringing Daredevil over to Disney Plus now, and it'll be what it is. And uh, the Punisher is coming over onto Daredevil, and presumably if that's successful, they'll find a way to spin that off again on Disney Plus. And we'll have to see how that actually looks on Disney Plus, because presumably it's not going to be the same show that it was on Netflix, but who knows? So yeah, you, you can, if you treat a franchise well and carefully in the beginning, then you can position it so that, subsequent spinoffs, if they fail, don't 
kill the franchise. And I think that's very smart what HBO has done. They they saw things that they thought had the risk of killing a franchise in its nascent stages, and they simply said, okay, we're not going to do that. And I, I respect that greatly. <laughs> yeah, and of all my interviews with Casey, when I asked him about all the various spinoffs of Game of Thrones that were in various stages of development, he always, always, always says the exact same thing. If it's good, we'll make it. Period. I don't think they're in a, in a rush to oversaturate something. So, anyway. As, as tempting as I'm sure it has to be, because, you know, you might have you might have heard a little bit about things happening at, at Warner Brothers and <laughs> the need for things to make money and all of that. And if you have something that is very successful, et cetera. But anyway, it's it it all is a it all returns to the parable or myth or whatever you want to say of the goose that laid the golden eggs is that you just don't wanna you don't want to kill the goose. So continuing along, we we get a lot of these questions. Uh Edward asks, what do you envision the state of network TV? presumably broadcast network TV, looking like in 10 years, will it look like syndicated TV from the late 90s? Will shows originate on streaming and then go to pay cable and then to basic cable and then finally to network TV? I could see where How I Met Your Father will be shown on Freeform soon. If successful, could it eventually go to ABC? What do you think? Um, I like the idea that Disney is putting How I Met Your Father on Freeform. Um I think this question is probably the most accurate out of what uh, out of a lot of the similar ones that we get. But yeah, I think the windowing model is something that broadcast is eventually going to have to look at because we know, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show in headlines that Blue Bloods was returning for another season because the cast and producers agreed to a 25% pay cut. Otherwise, CBS was going to cancel the show. So they have to figure out a way to change the business model on these broadcast shows because the windows of the, the way to make these shows profitable, selling them internationally, selling the streaming rights, those are evaporating because you need those for your own in-house streamers. So how do you make content? How do you make art? And how do you make that profitable in a landscape where your revenue streams have collapsed. And I think the idea that some people are going to want to pay for to watch it on streaming and not have to pay 180 bucks a month for cable, I freaking hate it. I wish the Dodgers had their own streaming service because then I could cut the cord, but I can't, and alas. Uh, but yeah, I, I like this idea of windowing. And, you know, and again, this is just, you know, my vantage point and my prognostication here, but I like the idea that you're going to make shows for different streaming outlets and you're obviously everyone's doing that, right? You're, you're making like, you know, the Star Trek franchise is a great example, right? He's got the adult animated cartoon. He's got Starfleet Academy, which is catering to a younger audience. Then you have, you know, a show like Picard, which caters to, to the OG fans, right? And an older viewership because of the, you know, obviously who you have playing Picard, but like, your cable, your linear ecosystem is the same thing, right? Freeform is a younger skewing uh, cable network. How I Met Your Father is a younger skewing show made for Hulu. It makes perfect sense. And we've seen, you know, Warner Media do uh, some of this stuff too, where they took some of the HBO Max content and aired it on TNT and TBS. Super smart. TBS and TNT don't have any originals left, right? It's all like cheap unscripted shows 
There's no script that's left. So that's a great way of using content that you've already created and paid for to fill a hole or to even, and, and then it also, it, it serves as basically a free commercial for your streaming service. It's like, okay, say how I met your father works on Freeform and the ratings for it, even though it, it, this is the first season, I think, right, that they're going to air, even though that's already what, a year old? Cause this is what's currently airing, I believe is season two or the part two of season one, season two, I don't know. And if that works on, on Freeform, it's going to drive signups for Hulu to get people to watch the rest of it, right? You know, it's like you go back, I'm dating myself here with this reference, but go back to, and look at how DirecTV saved Friday Night Lights, right? If you're a diehard Friday Night Lights fan like I was, you don't want to be spoiled. I switched cable providers so I could get Dir Friday Night Lights on DirecTV so I didn't have to wait six or eight months to watch it when it was on NBC. But DirecTV at the time paid a premium to have the first run. So... If you're, uh, you know, one of these big media conglomerates and, and you're, you know, say you're Disney and we'll keep with the How I Met Your Father reference, you've already paid for this show. It costs you nothing. Or maybe there's some deal that you kick back to the, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm sure this is probably all going to be in some kind of WGA negotiation, if, if not this round, then in the next one. But these windowing strategies, it's... It's, I think it's, it's a, a really, really smart way to do this, right? Like you're already, people are already trained that if they miss the linear debut of a show, they can watch it the next day on Hulu or on Peacock. And obviously like with HBO, you don't have to wait till the next day. You can watch Succession on HBO Max as it's airing on HBO proper. If, but if you don't have HBO proper as part of a cable package, you can still watch it on HBO Max at the exact same time. Like it's, to me, the windowing idea is it's a slam dunk. And I was honestly surprised during the pandemic when there was a, a content shortage, because obviously no one saw that coming, you know, and, and you can't prepare for something like that in the same way that you can prepare and that some of these networks and streamers are preparing for a possible WGA strike this year. But I was shocked that, that Disney didn't sit there and say, we've got the Mandalorian, we're going to pop it on ABC on a Friday night and turn it into some huge event. Like, imagine the broadcast ratings for Mandalorian pilot. Like, huge, right? Free promo for Disney+. Plus. They didn't do it. I mean, I think they did it recently, but that would have been made a shit ton of sense to me to do at the time. But I would love to see them do something more like this because you're already paying for this content. And like, think about it, right? Girls 5 Eva loved the first season. Nobody watched it. They renewed it for a second season because they believe in the creative. Nobody watched it on Peacock. If you air that show on NBC or say, hell, pop it on USA Network at 10 p.m. if it's a little bit too racy or raunchy for, for broadcast, expose it to, to, to an audience where you know people are showing up in droves, right? Broadcast, basic cable. USA is still rates. They, they still get eyeballs for a lot of their content. They just don't have originals anymore. But if they had sampled it there, similar to what HBO and HBO Max had done with putting like, I think it was like Titans and Doom Patrol and maybe even season one of The Flight Attendant on TBS or TNT, like maybe that show finds an audience and you don't have to sell it to, to Netflix for season three. I don't know. But I like this windowing idea. And again, this is just just me rambling for five minutes. And so far, no one has done it in a or no one, not no one, but so far it hasn't been done regularly on a consistent basis. It's been done mostly yeah. as a here's a random stunt to get a little bit more exposure. Like uh, 
like what ABC did with with the Mandalorian, where it they they did air a couple episodes, but it was it was just one night. It wasn't like this is going to become a part of the the ABC schedule, and you're going to get invested, and then we'll make you go to Disney Plus for it. There hasn't been that kind of cultivation. It's been it's been a sampling strategy more than a platforming strategy. Yeah, and I so think that, it's a free promo for Disney Plus. It is, but I wonder if a more consistent effort would make any difference. But I think probably that Disney Plus is not stressing out about the ratings for The Mandalorian. Probably. I don't know. Maybe right, they but are. like they had a, that show Mysterious Benedict Society. Obviously, it skewed young. They could have popped that on Freeform. And that's going to save you however much money you're going to pay for originals. You don't have to market them because it's already aired. Pop it on broadcast. Do, do the windowing thing. Like, you know, I mean, these are, I don't know. There's a cost savings here and there's a way to get more out of the content that people currently have. But I don't know what kind of deals for some of these shows that are that are already exist that already exist prohibit them from giving it a broadcast window or how much you're going to have to edit it right like you know remember way back during the last uh, writer strike uh, was it the last one it might have been the one before that but uh, CBS aired edited bits of Dexter right and we know that TNT is going to air edited episodes of True Blood. Right. Like, I mean, I don't know how you do that. There's gonna be like nothing left. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it, it, it just makes sense. And, and there's a, a fiscal savings there, too. So there there is. But there's also the question of what advertisers are going to want and what degree advertisers are going to want to get behind airing what is effectively repeats. And there has to be whole negotiations about what the expectations would be for ratings, because for the most part, really and truly, I don't think you would get huge audiences for these things. Uh you just might get speculative but audiences. You're getting a, what a point nine on some of these broadcast shows oh. on on the big four? Abso absolutely. I like, just don't. I how don't much lower do the ratings have to go? Like you know, it's like you're still getting a huge audience in real time, as opposed to streaming, where you you know who knows. You don't know how many people are watching. I don't know what you tell an advertiser, though. And that and and the exact thing that you just mentioned about not knowing how many people are watching, it makes it harder to know what to tell an advertiser. Because are you telling an advertiser you're putting your advertising dollars here behind what is effectively a new show for some of your viewers? Because obviously the only ratings you're getting for that are going to be the people who haven't watched it. Someone who already has Disney Plus and watches The Mandalorian on Disney Plus probably is not going to randomly decide they want to watch it in its ABC run when they could watch it as much as they wanted on Disney Plus. But what do you what do you tell an advertiser when that is the thing that you're attempting to do? But if you're I mean, Disney Plus is going to have ads at some point, right? I mean, bundle it, right? Make it make the package deal, right? And at the same time, there's still people in this world that are not subscribing to streaming, right? There's a reason they call it broadcast TV. It's because it's broad. It caters to an audience that everyone wants, right? You look at the shows that that are working, like a night agent, for example, which is, a, a we just talked about it in headlines, a monster hit. Netflix renewed that show six days after it premiered. Six days! That's like one of the fastest renewals Netflix has ever given out. It's clearly connecting with a big, broad audience. By the way, that's also a show that could work on on Fox or NBC or CBS. Oh, 100. And, and that's completely true, is that The Night Agent, if you trimmed three minutes per episode out of it, it you would basically have to trim out one or two uh, 
four letter F-bombs. words. Yeah. And, and that's it. There would there'd be nothing else. There's no there's no violence that I that I think you couldn't show at in a 10 p.m. hour on broadcast. There's definitely no sexuality that you couldn't show in a 10 p.m. hour on broadcast. You would basically be saying, and we talked about this with, with Sean, about the the little conversations between characters. All you would have to do is remove three minutes of those per episode, and it absolutely could just go on on CBS. And you're removing it just to create time for ads, not because of the content, right? And that's, I mean, so many of these streaming shows could be could be broadcast, right? And all the shows that everyone wants to buy, like Jack Ryan is a huge hit for Amazon, and that has prompted a lot of other streamers to look for similar themed shows, right? Amazon doubled down on uh, on that. Obviously, they're doing they're prepping a spinoff of it, and they've got Reacher, which is basically a different version of the same same idea. Everyone's doing that big broad show, right? Yellowstone. It's it's the same idea. It's a broad show, a character-driven show with a huge star in the middle of it. Right? I mean, this is what broadcast does. Anyway. It's a good good question. Great question. Fun topic. And a reminder, if you have questions that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on the show, we're going to do another mailbag, probably the end of April. Go ahead and drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's the number 5 at THR.com. Number 4. Up fourth this week, it's not the showrunner spotlight. No, 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 no. You got to wait a minute for that. We're bumping up the critics' corner as we are fully aware that our conversations around baseball, sadly, aren't appreciated by all of our listeners. So among this week's major new launches, Netflix debuts Beef, Apple wins the big door prize, Amazon gets the power, and FX meets Dave again. Dan, what you got? Lots of good stuff. And, uh... I'm going to hold off on a, on a fuller review of, of Beef until next week. Uh, Angie reviewed it for us, and, and she loved it. And so I've just been keeping up with things. I've seen the first two episodes of Beef, and uh, I thought it was uh, really excellent. Uh, Stephen Yeun and Ali Wong in particular are are just terrific. And uh, and it it's sort of in the vein of Swarm in that I can't exactly tell you it's a ha-ha-ha comedy. Uh, it's much more intense than you would expect a ha-ha-ha comedy to be. Uh, but it, so, you know, you have to kind of settle into its sensibility and and whatnot. Um, but anyway, so I will I will talk more about this uh, next week. I believe you, you've watched the whole thing and you really enjoyed it, Leslie? Yeah, it's a great binge. One episode to the next, you're just going to want to keep it rolling. So if you have rain coming in your in your area, this is your your rainy day watch. So so, yeah, so I will I will talk more about beef next week. But since it actually does premiere uh, next Thursday, I believe. So just mentioning it, it's worth checking out and definitely worth checking out uh, Angie Hunt's THR review, which is very enthusiastic. Going back a couple days, uh, the Big Door Prize has already premiered on Apple TV Plus and it is based on a novel and the premise of it is that in a small town, very small insular small town at the local general store, because the small town does not have major grocery stores or other various things. It's a interestingly insular town, a machine pops up and for $2, it will give you an envelope containing a card and the card will tell you your life's potential. Leslie, if I offered you the chance to pay $2 to find out your life's potential, would you pay $2 to find out your life's potential? I don't know. 
I don't know. I'd also add about about the big door prize. I'd also add that it that it asks for your uh, for your social security number and for your fingerprints. Okay, so you're just going to assume that that's a data mining situation. Okay, excellent. Yep. Nope. Um, so yes, so it gives people, uh, cards containing their life's potential and then they have to figure out what that actually means and how they adjust their lives. It's, it's a little bit Kurt Vonnegut-y, it's a little bit Shirley Jackson-y, it's a little bit Stephen King-y, it's definitely, it, it feels like a semi-comedic version of Needful Things to some degree. It's also a show that to me borderline could have been an episode of the twilight zone definitely could have been a feature here it's 10 half hour episodes and i liked it for a long long time but then in extending itself into a potential second season it starts making the machine and its mystery into something that you can solve. And I didn't care at all. Zero percent did I care about where this machine came from and how it's doing what it's doing. Zero percent, no caring whatsoever. Some people probably do. That's entirely fine. I cared about the mystery of the people and how the people responded. And that is, for the most part, what the show is about. I just kind of wish that the show had been a 10-episode show that either gave you some token answers at the end or didn't. But to me, there's absolutely nothing to be gained from telling me where this machine came from. There's nothing that I am interested in about that. I'm interested in how people respond to an ephemeral and mystical thing that can be tied into religion, can be tied into various social constructs. All of the things that are symbolic about this, I find fascinating. All of the things that are concrete, I find not the least bit fascinating. And towards the end of the first season, you can kind of sense that they're going towards the concrete. And that's not what I care about. Uh, it's a very, very good ensemble. Chris O'Dowd is the biggest actor in it and and the biggest name, though lots of people love uh, Josh, Josh Segarra from, well, from the other two and from uh, he was just in She-Hulk, et cetera, et cetera. So he's kind of a bigger name. Everyone will recognize Damon Gupton uh, from various different TV shows. Lots of people have kind of recognizability. And it, it's just a good ensemble. Everybody gets a little bit of a chance to uh, to so- to shine some. Uh, Juliet Amara plays the daughter of the characters uh, played by Chris O'Dowd and Gabrielle Dennis. And I think she's excellent. I think she's particularly good um, and probably the breakout of the cast. But sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's a little bit philosophically interesting. It spends too much time over-explaining those themes. Uh, But really and truly, if this had been a self-contained thing that was willing to, as the Leftovers theme song says, let the mystery be, I would be very enthusiastic about it. Because it feels like it has answers it needs to provide, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic, I confess. But... Some people will be like, ooh, I need to know answers. What, what company produces this machine? And what is the actual tangible mechanical process wherein it predicts people's potentials? 
if you're that kind of person, maybe you will be more intrigued by where the show is going and want a second season. I probably will not care about a second season, but maybe you will. Speaking of shows with big themes and perhaps a little excessive concreteness, uh, I've watched four and a half episodes of The Power on Amazon. They were very, very, very late to get critics, screeners for this one, and I just didn't have time to to watch more of it. Um, the premise is that it's a very recognizable American society, uh, and it's also based on a best-selling novel, not one I've read, uh, based on a contemporary society in which teenage girls mysteriously develop an extra organ that generates electricity and allows them to shoot electrical pulses out of their fingertips. And that causes problems because people don't know how to respond to it. Also, because as again, going back to Stephen King would tell you the scariest thing for mainstream society to deal with is always teenage girls, teenage girls, freak society the heck out. And this is a concretizing version of that. It has a lot of big things on its mind. And I really do admire the number of things that it wants to to talk about. And so it is very, very, very on the nose with its discussions of how this theme relates to bodily autonomy for young women, how it relates to attempts to legislate women's bodies. And guess what? That shit's timely. And it feels timely. It feels very much on the nose. But also, at, at this exact moment, I don't really... It, that doesn't bother me because some of these things that it wants to talk about are very important. A lot of the things that it wants to discuss after the four and a half episodes I've seen, I'm not sure how well it's doing. So if you were to compare it to something like Sense8 or Why the Last Man, and I think those are, are fair comparisons. I don't think it's as um I don't think it's as formally interesting as uh, Sense8 by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it's as fully considered as Why the Last Man. But you compare how those shows handled issues of gender and sex, and I think they were smarter about it. I think it's possible that trans issues might be more interestingly explored as the power goes along. It doesn't feel like a thing that it can avoid but it also doesn't seem like a thing that it's diving head on into. And I feel like maybe it should have, uh, or maybe it needs to, but if it turns out to do that in episode six, I'm not going to feel like that's way too late or anything. Some of the reaches to give the show a tangible current value don't work as well to me. There are international aspects to it. There are large stretches set in, in Saudi Arabia and various middle Eastern countries where I can completely and totally see the things that they're going for, uh, but I don't think they do it well, and I don't think they do it well to the degree that it verges on stereotyping and, and borderline xenophobia in ways that are concerning. But I like see why they're doing it, so it doesn't bother me so much. Uh, the cast is is decent. I think Tony Collette is is great. She plays the mayor of Seattle. Uh, she plays the mother of a teenage girl who's beginning to experience 
these electrical impulses played by uh, Ali Cravalho, who's also good. Uh, John Leguizamo plays her husband. He's good. Uh, Tohib Jimo from Ted Lasso. Incidentally, this show feels like it was both written and produced multiple years ago, in large part because it was. I believe they actually began production on this on the first season before the pandemic, which at this point is it, it's it says something if you're premiering a show in 2023 and you began production in early 2020. I think they're trying to figure things out and you can see the process of figuring things out. I thought the first episode was really clumsy uh, and just not good storytelling. It begins with a bad in media ray uh, opening. It splits the narrative up in three or four chunks and and it just takes a while to get into some of them. And I kind of wonder if there was a smoother way to do that. But by episode three or four, I, I was pretty curious and pretty entertained to see how things were going. And so I was I was interested in that. And then last but in no way least, I've watched three episodes of the third season of Dave. Uh, this is one that has not been on for a long time. The last new episode aired in August of 2021. Uh, the first three episodes back this season takes Dave on the road uh, along with Gaeta and Els and uh, some of the gang. So Mike is there on the road with them and Emma is on the road with them. The, the show needs to figure out what's happening with Taylor Mishak because Allie isn't in the first three episodes and I don't understand that at all. Uh, but what I will say is that it's just a really, really good show. And the second episode in particular is fantastic. The second episode is wonderful. It's uh, it's all built around the chaotic production on a music video for an autobiographical song of Dave's about his first love. Uh, and it, it's just a great episode. The, the first and third episodes are very good. And I enjoy Dave very much and big guest stars and all of that. The, the second episode is particularly uh, special and it, it features a, a running guest star. So they're, you know, they're big celebrity cameos. This is just a really good guest star in the second episode who I'm not going to spoil because some people might like to have her as a surprise. Uh, but yeah, so loved the second season of uh, the second episode of Dave very much liked the first three overall and just generally glad to have it back. So as the recap goes, uh, I'm going to talk more about Dave and uh, about beef next week. Beef premieres next Thursday on Netflix. I will have watched the whole first season by next Friday's podcast. I hope, um, big door prize comes down to some degree to what you're looking for in it. Um, I found a lot of it very appealing, though. So give it a give it a shot. Maybe you'll be more invested in the mechanics and mythology of it. Power. I, I didn't think it was bad. I, I thought the first episode was bad, but then I thought that it was getting at important things and trying to do interesting things with the idea of the reasons why um, teenage girls freak society out. It's actually an amusing companion with Hulu's. Brooke Shields documentary, which premieres at the beginning of next week, uh, which is also about just all of the strange and unappealing and sketchy things about the early stages of Brooke Shields career and and how those relate to the way that Hollywood in particular struggles to deal with teenage girls and preteen girls in the case of Brooke Shields. Uh, 
but yeah, so so give it a look and keep in mind that it does get better. The first episode is is I would say rough, um, and that's Amazon's The Power, and then again FXX's Dave is really good, and the second episode is excellent. <sighs> Deep sigh, lots of TV. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash TV dash reviews for more. And speaking of more. Number five. We are wrapping up this week's podcast and joining us to celebrate the start of the 2023 Major League Baseball season is Joe Davis, the broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who is fresh off of calling a riveting World Baseball Classic and his first World Series last October under his deal with Fox. Davis returns for his seventh season as the Dodgers play-by-play man after taking over for the legendary Vin Scully. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Joe. We appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be with you guys. So I'm still buzzing from the World Baseball Classic and the fact that we somehow ended up getting that final game and that final at bat with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. How magical and significant did it seem to you seeing it unfold like that? I've said, Dan, that I wish that I could get a rewind button and then a pause button and go back and pause the moment to really fully appreciate it because it happens so fast. And when you're in the moment trying to call it, I don't know if you can properly appreciate what you're watching. I don't even know if you can properly appreciate it as a fan sitting there when you when all you're doing is watching. So it was one of those things where you heard that Otani maybe was going to pitch and then it was, oh, well, maybe it's going to be against the United States in the championship. And then I think people said, can you imagine if he faced Mike Trout? Not only did all those things happen, but he faced Mike Trout in the ninth inning of the championship game in a one-run game with two outs, and it went to a full count. I mean, you guys are in the Hollywood business. That's the kind of stuff that gets turned down in your realm of the world because it's unrealistic. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Throw that script out. Yeah, I mean, I was saying, you know, obviously watch the game too, but like I was, I kept saying that, um, you couldn't script it any better. I mean, the only the only note that I would have is not having Mookie hit into a double play right before that. But yeah, and, and he never bounces out to second. It was like, never. oh no, not now, Mookie. Save it <laughs> yeah, for like game oh. seven or something of the regular season, second inning. Yeah, save it for the Rockies. Come on, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, in ge- in general, though, this WBC felt at least very much from the outside watching it on TV as if it was catching on and catching buzz in a way that maybe previous installments hadn't to the same degree. Did it, did it feel that way to you also? I hope so. I, I agree. It felt the same way for me. I'm, and I'm hoping that it's not just cause I'm so close to it for the first time that I'm calling it for the first time, but I will say that in the days since I've just about everybody that I see that knows what I do, they bring up the WBC. I was at the eye doctor this morning and the receptionist is like, wow, you know, amazing WBC games. I'm like, who who talked about the WBC? Who even knew what it was until a couple of weeks ago? So I'm I'm really hoping and I'm I'm optimistic that this is going to launch it into a really special territory. But we are still a very, very picky society. And so people still have their various tweaks and critiques that they've been throwing out there um, between do they want to schedule it at a different time of year so as to avoid the season ending injuries for several players or should the final be best two out of three or best three out of five 
if you could make some changes to the format just to tweak it, what would you change? Yeah, the first thing I would say is we talked a lot about this as it went on, but as it finishes, how could you want to change anything after it went the way it went? Like obviously you don't want Edwin Diaz and Jose Altuve to get hurt. They can get hurt at any day in the calendar. It's not the WCBC's fault that they got hurt. Uh, I think that you could maybe look at something where you played pool play in March, so at the time that you that they have played the WBC, and then the semis and the championship or even the quarters through the championship, you play during what is now the All-Star break. So every three years, maybe you don't have an All-Star game, and I know that's probably like sacrilegious to even bring that up, but you shut the season down for a week, and it turns into this global event. There are no other sports going on then. So think about the way you're not competing with NBA and NHL build up to the playoffs. You're not competing with March Madness. You have the sports world attention. Think how big it was when you're competing with all the others. Now think how big it could be if you did it in mid-July. Again, all that said, if they don't change anything, I think we've seen that it's just fine how it is. Yeah, I obviously I love the All Star Game. I've been going. I, I think I, the very first one I went to was 1989, and I went wow. last year when it was in, in LA, of course. But like, that's such a fun weekend, and all those events are great. But I love the idea of putting the finals and the semis in there because it, it did feel like watching it to me. You know, it's like this winner take all mentality. It was just it was so exciting in a way that I haven't felt in a long time. It was some of the best baseball that I've ever seen. You know, and taking a cue from Dan's question, too, but is there something that you would like to take from the WBC and those games that MLB can learn and implement? Obviously, there's a lot of new new rules, and we'll get to that next, but what would you take from the WBC and bring to the, the MLB season? I would take the benches clearing home run celebrations in big moments just as as kind of the headline for all the things that I would take. And that is that I think every ball player and every person has a kid inside of them. It's just a matter of letting it out. And you may hear one of my kids letting it out in the background right now. And Major League Baseball, for one reason or another, tradition has been to suppress that. You don't, you don't let that kid come out because you're going to get hit in the ribs the next time you're up. You don't want to show up the other guy. But I think that there's this buy-in now that, like, you can let that kid out and it's okay. And all the guys that were part of this appreciated that part about it. And I think Team USA was a little bit slower to come around. Venezuela, Puerto Rico, the, the Latin countries, that's part of their baseball culture. And the U.S. did its best to keep up with that passion. And I think as they let that come out, they said, man, this is fun. Mookie Betts, who's won two World Series, told me that the greatest moment of his baseball life was meeting Trey Turner at home plate on that Grand Slam and having his entire team with him. So Mookie said that he's going to be the guy for the Dodgers to encourage that. And that doesn't mean a, a solo shot in the third inning in May. They're going to be empty in the bench, but the big home runs late in games certainly get into the postseason. I would love it if we had those kinds of celebrations. Yeah, that I mean, I love seeing Mike Trout with a captain's salute and everybody else, yeah. you know, from like when he gets anyone gets on base. It was just really fun to see. And obviously there's been stuff like that with the head taps and all that other thing. But, you know, in a in a larger sense, for moments like this, like you've, you've just called your first World Series in October. You, now you're at the WBC coming back for your seventh season with the Dodgers. You know, have you noticed the, which games you p- kind of prefer to call? Is it these international games, postseason baseball? Is there a different approach that you have? Like, what do you, you know, the the inner baseball fan inside of you, mm-hmm. what's that one where 
you know, you want to let the, where the kid comes out to play, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, the World Series still stands alone for me. I don't know that I'll ever, that I'll ever do anything that is better than that. But the WBC went from truthfully being an event that I looked at going in as borderline nuisance in the way of my prep for the regular season. And I'm like, okay, it was going to be cool once I got there in Team USA, and I was going to appreciate it and have fun doing it. But it went from being something that was kind of in the way of what I looked at as my quote-unquote real season to something that I enjoyed as much as anything I've ever done. So, and the players talk about it too, where they, you know, these guys that have played in the postseason are saying, this is unlike anything that we've done. This is, this is a, a better environment. This is louder than the World Series. But then they're always careful to couch it with, it's just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. And it was awesome to have this unanticipated feeling that this different brand of baseball was really special. So I, I would put it right up there. Um, especially the end of the championship game, I'd put that right below my World Series experience. On a practical level for you, how does the prep differ? Because obviously when you're covering the same team every day for, you know, 162 games, et cetera, you know every single in and out about them. You know 50 stories for each of them and all of that. In this case, you're probably learning some, you're learning to pronounce some people's names, but you're also learning who they are, what they do, how do you get up to speed so that it at least sounds like you've been covering those athletes you've never seen before for 162 games? Yeah, right. Like Sosuke Genda. I'd never heard of Sosuke Genda until a week ago. So it's vastly different. And even Major League Baseball games on Saturday for Fox are vastly different than getting ready for a Dodger game. And postseason games are different than getting ready for a regular season game. WBC was much different because in the case of Team Japan in particular, and like Great Britain, who I had in Team USA's first game, I'd never heard of these dudes. So you've got you've to learn about guys who you have no base of knowledge on and be able to teach the audience something about them. I guess in a way that makes it easier in that it's my job to give you the headline on who, to go back to that example earlier, Sosuke Genda is. The audience doesn't know who he is either. Whereas when I'm prepping for a major league game, um, let's just say I was working on the, the Giants today. So let's just say Brandon Crawford. There's a base of knowledge there, so it's easier. But on the other hand, it's more difficult because everybody has that base of knowledge. Everybody knows who Brandon Crawford is. So what do you do to bring something to the table that nobody knows? Whereas Sosuke Genda, I just tell you that he's a shortstop and I've taught you something. So all different and... Uh, all significant to the job. I mean, 90% of the job is that homework. And then you also, with the WBC, because of the international aspect of it, you got to inject some geopolitical context. People were talking about your specific discussion of, of Cuba and about the regime in Cuba, etc. How did you decide how much of that you wanted or needed to bring into the these games? Yeah, it's a good question. I flew to Florida on Saturday. That's when Team USA was in the middle of the quarterfinal game and sat down on the flight, had all my prep work ready to go for Team Cuba to learn about all their players. For the first three hours of the flight, I was just reading about Cuban-American relations and how this all works when it comes to players defecting and what they're allowed to do and what they're not. And I didn't sit down with the intent of doing that. I just sat down to learn about Team Cuba and said, holy cow, this is complicated. And this is real. And this is the story. That said, nobody's tuning into a baseball game to hear about 
politics. So I didn't want to make it into a thing where people are looking for a distraction. They're looking for a good time. They don't want to hear about the oppressive Cuban, Cuban government. But you don't want to gloss over it because it is the story in a lot of ways. So it was just important for me not to completely ignore it, but also important for me not to dwell on it. And I, truthfully, I like I don't know much about politics. I'm kind of like blissfully ignorant when it comes to politics these days. So it was something that I studied and tried to master. So I had a handle on it, but didn't want to make it into a, a big thing. It was a baseball game and it needed to be that. You know, getting back into uh, the Dodgers and what and your pairings this season, you and Oral Hershiser have built up a really nice fan base. Uh, my Dodger Therapy text group of friends and I, we all love the dynamic between you guys, as does social media. You know, Oral, we know, doesn't really travel much uh, to road, for road games anymore. And the Dodgers this season added MLB Network's Steven Nelson to the broadcast crew. How many games will you and Oral be calling this season? And for you, does it make it easier being paired with a former player? I mean, you look at even the spring training games and Tim Neverett also paired with a former player in Rick Monday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, so Oral's actually going to do some road games this year. So that's going to be awesome. Um, I am doing fewer Dodger games this year. Uh, just a, a nature of, you know, the, the new Fox deal and... Um, because of that, it winds up being right around the same number we were doing before, where had I kept the same schedule, it would have been more. But as he added back in a little bit more, I cut back a little bit. So um, we'll do a lot together, but I'll still be working with the other analysts. All the same analysts that were part of the road crew last year are going to be back. And I think they'll even do a handful of home games, too. So it'll be, it won't be where it's oral exclusively at home. And then a combination of EK and Jess and Dontrell and Nomar on the road. It's basically those five scattered throughout the schedule. Oral majority home, but plenty of road games for them too. How hard is that to have to find a different rapport game to game to game to game with the person who you're supposed to be having this very, yeah. very familiar conversation with for three to four hours on it's an afternoon. It's not ideal. And yeah, not <laughs> ideal. And I've said before, and I'll always say, I'd prefer that it was me and Oral for 162 or however many that I'm doing. Uh, and I, I would tell the other analysts that too. They know that. But uh, it's it is what it is, and it's my job as the play-by-play -play person to make the analysts as good as they can be, you know, to find out what they want to talk about, to find out what their strengths are, and to make them as comfortable as I can make them and turn it into as much of a conversation as I can. You're not going to be able to replicate what Oral and I have. It's The foundation of it is a real-life relationship, and I have great relationships with the other people too, but Oral and I really are like best friends. I mean, I, I named my kid after him. So uh, you're not going to be able to duplicate that, but you can certainly prioritize making sure that each analyst is comfortable and, and hopefully at their best when they're with you. Yeah, I, I really do love the... Uh, I love hearing Jessica Mendoza out um, calling games, whether it's with the Dodgers or during her time at ESPN, because mm -hmm. she, obviously she's, you know, a multiple gold medal winner in USA Olympic softball, a team that I loved very much and watched at all hours of the night. Um, but it's also really cool to see more women in the booth mm -hmm. because it's just, it you know, it, it really just. I don't know. It, it, it's just re really refreshing. It's amazing. Um, and it's yeah. a it's another snapshot of what we're talking about with the WBC, maybe taking off and exploding and more people getting into baseball. It's a wonderful reflection of how global in every sense the sport is. It's not just 
white men in America that watch this sport. It's men, women, white, black, brown, blue, green from all over the world. And uh, it's something that I think brings us all together. Yeah. And, and, you know, the and there have been so many more women to get into baseball, not not just the, you know, the calling calling games. And obviously, Kirsten Watson is, you know, part of the crew, but in in the front office, too. Right. Yeah. You know, anyway, I'm, I digress. But yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was going to ask, has anyone you've sat down in the booth with with who isn't oral made any jokes about the closeness that you guys have, like, like, are you, I know you're not going to be able to name any of your children after me, but you know, like, or, or is it just yeah. unspoken? Uh, <laughs> the one to do that would be Ek. He's a huge ball buster, so he, uh, yeah, he's the he's the ultimate guys guy that you never find a person to say a, a bad word about because everybody loves him, and he's definitely the one who would fire shots at me about that. I don't know that I can say that he has. I'm sure he has. I'm sure there's been like, oh, because I'm not oral, and you know. Uh, but he would say that right in front of Oral, too. And you know who else would do that? Uh, A.J. Pruszynski, who I've worked with some at Fox. He is every bit the 12-year-old that you would think that he is. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, he's he's got all the jokes, too. You know, there's a lot of new rules uh, in baseball this season. The pitch clock, obviously, is the one that everyone seems to be talking about this spring. But we know that we've seen, at least from spring training, how that's affecting pitchers and hitters. But what about the, how the game's new accelerated pace is affecting you and your job in the broadcast booth. You know, what kind of sense do you have about how much faster these games are going to go and how it's going to really change the way that you call a game? Yeah, I love it. I think it's going to be so good for baseball. I think that after a month, you're not even going to realize the clock's there. You're just going to feel the benefit of it. And for me, as far as calling games, I guess, you know, famous last words here maybe, but because I haven't done any spring training games yet, so I haven't done any games with the clock. But I have, I can count on one hand how many times in my career I have wished that I had more time. So people have asked, like, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do with this, you know, only 15 seconds? How are you going to get everything in that you need? I never want more. Our best, our best broadcasts come. And this, this isn't because I want to go home and go to bed. This isn't because I want to be anywhere other than the ballpark because I don't. It's our best broadcasts come when the pitchers are working quickly you're leaning forward in your seat instead of slouching back, wondering when the next pitch is going to come. And there's action. You know, you think about like best playoff um, experience. A lot of people would say would be watching Stanley Cup playoffs because it's white knuckle. There's always something happening, and you don't want white knuckle in baseball. I understand that. There's something <laughs> about the wonderful pace of a baseball game when it's played right. But some semblance of that, I think, is going to be so good. The only person that needs more time and deserves more time is Vin Scully, and none of us are Vin Scully, and none of us are ever going to be. So we don't need a bunch of time between pitches. We need those 15 seconds. We need balls in play. We'll tell the stories that we're going to tell. We don't need the game to to play into that because none of us are Vin, and very rarely do you spin it's the nature of a two-man booth versus what Vin was doing. Very rarely do you go off on an inning-long story because there's another person sitting next to who you're going to be engaging and talking to. So it is, I think, for baseball in general, the perfect thing. And I think for broadcast, as much has been made out of, wow, this is going to be different. How are we going to adjust? Come on. It's going to be, it's going to make life so much easier on all of us. You know, and in addition to the pitch clock, there's a lot of other new rules that it, that are helped designed to not just speed up the pace of play, but also make make the game more exciting, right? The elimination of the shift, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pizza box 
you know, larger bases and and a cap on the number of, of times a pitcher can throw over to first with a runner on. Which of these new rules do you think will make the biggest difference to the game outside of the pitch clock? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think the running game is to, to not take one specific rule, but to take one concept, one dynamic of the game that's going to be most affected by the rules. I don't know if it's cop-out answer, Leslie, but I think between the pickoff limits and the larger bases, however incremental that is, I think it could really be fun. I think you could see the running game take off. Obviously, the the shift limit should mean um, more base hits, which is more action. I think it just all it all kind of leads towards more moving pieces and more things to watch. And and we all prefer to watch a stolen base and a base hit and a ball in the gap and a guy running over a strikeout. You know, as cool as it is to see Clayton Kershaw drop a curveball in on somebody sitting there for a whole half inning and not having a ball in play and a full season like that where the game had kind of drifted to, I don't think that's great for anybody. So, uh, yeah, I think that obviously the pitch clock, number one, and then the other rules you talked about, I think all are uh, more subtle, but put together, I think are going to make a big difference. Well, the shift thing is is not subtle. It's something that that people were sort of increasingly scratching their head about in the past five or ten years, kind yeah. of forcing well, maybe or maybe not forcing baseball to make this decision. Were you pro or con on the shift? Did you think that was the thing that needed to be outlawed or just needed to be learned how to dealt, be dealt with, I guess? I was kind of neutral. I didn't have a strong opinion on that one. I felt really good about the pitch clock. I was all all on for that, all in for that. As far as the shift limit, I know that there are people that have said, well, no, the hitters need to adjust. But like you said, Dan, it's, this has been going for a decade, and they're not adjusting. They're not going to adjust. Not only have they not adjusted to hit the ball the other way, they actually have adjusted. They've just adjusted to try and hit the ball over the shift, and that's what's led partially to all the strikeouts and fewer balls in play. So I guess as I'm talking through it, I, I am in favor of it. Um, I don't love the idea of kind of playing God on the sport like that, but I don't know. I Also, baseball is always so hesitant to play God on the sport, for lack of a better way to put it again. But look at the benefits the NBA and the NFL get when they say, okay, this has gone runaway and we got to do something about it to bring the game back to a more enjoyable product. And so it's kind of like, let's get over ourselves, baseball. Let's get over ourselves, baseball people. This is not entertaining to watch strikeout after strikeout. It's not cool to watch a guy hit a ball into the shift. So let's not allow it to happen. Let's get rid yeah. of those things. So I guess, Dan, I feel very strongly that it's a good move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I'm was i a traditionalist when it comes to, you know, to baseball. I The idea of doing away with, with pitchers batting in the National League, I was so against that for so long. And then when they implemented it during the, the COVID season, I was just like, yeah, I'll miss when Kershaw homers on opening day and, to, yeah. you know, to win the game or when, you know, Hunjin Rio pops one over the fence and you're right. just like, you know, I think you called them, what did you call them? Babe, Babe Ryu? Babe Ryu, like, oh yeah. That was amazing. But those are those moments are few and far between. And yes. I've, I've come around on the, not only on loving the DH, but also some of these rules, like watching spring training. You're, I think you're right with the pitch clock. The beginning, it's hard to not notice it, especially the way that, that it was portrayed on, you know, on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, but even watching some of today's game, you don't really catch it at all. Yeah, you, know? you just but, feel a crisper product, right? You, you feel what comes from it. And I think that's all good. You talked about Vin and his 
rather remarkable ability to tell stories that were always the exact perfect length. That yeah. was kind of the remarkable thing is you would be like, this is, this is a really long story. How many, how many innings is it going to take to get through? But no, the last out of that inning, that was the end of the story. And he knew the rhythm of the game so perfectly. You are relatively early in your career. How do you feel about your own sense of the rhythms of the game and how well you feel like you know how to integrate yourself into those rhythms? Yeah, I think that I have a, a good feel and rhythm for the game. I've worked really hard on storytelling. I've studied it like it's a college course. I've studied it like it's a discipline. I've read books. I've talked with great storytellers. I've listened to Vin for, for years um, trying to make myself better at it. Because I think as with anything, you're only going to be as good as the amount of practice you put into it. Nobody's like a born natural storyteller. I'm sure there's there's some storytelling probably sense of timing and stuff like that. But I think with anything, the only way to get better at it is to have purposeful, deliberate practice doing it. So I've done that throughout my seven or eight years doing this. And um, I'm not Vin and never will be, but I'd like to think that I'm better than I was last year and a lot better than I was eight years ago, but not as good as I'm going to be at the end of this year. Well said. You know, the, the Dodgers announced this week that there was going to be a, a Vin Scully installation outside of the broadcast booth. Obviously, it, you know, it, it's hard to escape the shadow of a legend like Vin, especially when the, the press box is named after him. But is there something that you do every game that you either learn from him or that you do to pay your respects to him? I think it's just the the back to the storytelling word. Um, there's nothing formal that I do, but the appreciation for the role of storytelling in a baseball broadcast came from that 2016 season when he was just doing the home games and I was just doing the road games and we didn't have any crossover because of the natural difference in schedule. But part of my job was to obviously watch the games that I wasn't doing. So I would listen to Vin every minute of every home game. And I, as a fan sitting there watching, really loved it, loved hearing the stories. And so I felt that I loved it. I knew that it would be the expectation from Dodger fans because it's all they've had for since the team's been here. So I knew that I needed to incorporate it. And then as I started to and was really horrible at it, but I would still listen and I would hear when I'd go back and critique myself, I'd hear myself tell these stories and that's when my ears would perk up even if I was doing it poorly so I put all these things together and it's like yeah there really is something to this we're a storytelling species right like we want to hear stories and I think we want to know that these players are a little bit like us and so it's a way to humanize them and I've, I've just every day without necessarily thinking um, about Vin specifically the idea of storytelling needing to be a part of my broadcast, that seed was planted by appreciating the way he did his job. Yeah. And and speaking of, you know, your appreciation for Vin, you had the distinction, I would actually, I should say, the an incredibly difficult job of telling Dodger fans during a game broadcast against the Giants, no less, that Vin had passed away, you know, and this is breaking news in real time. And you're telling fans, including myself, I was watching. That to me was one of the most emotional baseball games I, I've ever watched on TV because you told story after story after story the entire game. And it was just, I mean, I was crying halfway through, you know, for 
most of it. It was just, I, I struggle to put it to words. It was just an incredibly well done game. Thank you. And now having some time between that, how do you reflect back on on that day and the way you responded to it? Because personally, if there was yeah. one person who was going to break that news to me, I, I'm honestly kind of glad it was you. Well, thank you. That means a ton. Um, I truthfully didn't realize how much of an impact. Obviously, I realized what, what impact Vin had had on people, and I knew how crushing it would be to everybody that he had passed. I didn't appreci fully appreciate in that moment my role in delivering the message. So I... I looked at it as a great responsibility to sort of be the first to eulogize him there. But I didn't necessarily realize until, man, I, I probably that night, and I saw I had hundreds of text messages and emails from people saying some version of what you just said, Leslie. And it was like, wow. I mean, I, 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 knew, that, I knew that this was going to hit people hard. Uh, I knew that I needed to do a good job eulogizing him. I just didn't really realize what doing a good job eulogizing him would mean to people. So um, it, it means a lot when I hear from people like you who I know were impacted as much as you were throughout your entire baseball life by Vin, um, that, that you appreciated what, not just me, but what our whole crew and, and Jess, I thought Jess was amazing. Um, she, she was the perfect person for that spot. Um, what we all did, because, you know, we, we uh, took a lot of pride, I think, in what we were able to do that night. Because that's not something that did was that something that you you prepared for no, I mean, did you it, have no. anything ready no I mean, we knew that he wasn't doing well uh but i found out in the third inning bottom of the third inning that he had passed away and okay top of the fourth or, or maybe off by an inning or two but top of the fourth we're going to come back and as we come back dodgers are going to post the news to social media and that's when we'll announce it on here so from there, it was basically just uh, a night of trying to balance the game against the Giants. Like you said, it's kind of fitting, right, that they were playing the Giants when this happened and uh, trying to balance that game and do justice to the greatest baseball broadcaster that ever lived. And also fittingly, it's something that he had you know, he actually had eulogized somebody on the air before, but it's not like there's a blueprint for this. But there was a blueprint in how to balance the serious and the game because Vin would go in and out of that every night. So uh, kind of probably inspired without necessarily thinking about it just by everything I had learned through osmosis listening to him. So we are, of course, a television podcast, except for when we we delight our listeners by talking about baseball. Yeah. But that means that we, of course, have to ask you, have you watched Brockmire? Uh, I have not. I've seen like two episodes of it, and I think that I had, I don't think I know that I had a chance to be in an episode, and it just didn't line up with my schedule. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is this is a few years ago, and actually it was at the stage of my career where it would have been like a pretty big deal for the old Q rating or whatever they call it, you know, to, to get on Brockmire. But no, I, I can't say I'm an avid watcher of it, Dan. Is that just a factor of time or you spend yeah. so much of your life being an announcer that you really just don't want to watch a show about? No, I think I would like it. Um, it's probably a little crude for my wife from from what I've seen on it. And so my show watching is all with my wife. So it's if it's not something she's also going to really enjoy, maybe I'm wrong. She may really enjoy it. Um, 
but we have not watched it together. And yeah, it is a time thing with three kids and you only get so many shows, so you better fire the right bullet if you're going to pick one. Not saying that's the wrong one. We just haven't chosen it yet. Yeah, so you lead us into you know uh, uh, our next question. We always close out our interviews with the same thing, but other than the games that you call, what have you been watching and enjoying? So for me, the number one show on TV right now is Succession. Love Ted Lasso. I know that's going right now. Uh, let's see, what else? You know what we watch that is like all my favorite things? The Bear. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, was that amazing or what? So I'm. You guys know, Les. You may know this, especially. I'm, I'm pretty simple when it comes to my tastes. I've got my family. I've got the Dodgers, and then I love food and I love restaurants and cooking. So this show, and I love great shows, right? So this show, the intensity of a cook and a perfectionist, and I, I kind of relate with that that side of the brain too. This show was amazing. The last two episodes of that show took it for me from. This is a great show to like, this is one of the best seasons of television I think I've watched in a long time. So there's a few for you. Best all time, Breaking Bad. Best, uh, okay, well, since, we're, since we're doing the best, best baseball movie or your favorite mm, baseball Field movie. Field of Dreams. Uh, if there's one baseball movie that you would love to see adapted into a TV show, which one? Hmm. I think Bull Durham could be good, right? Follow, yeah. you know, follow yeah, my league team. Yeah, uh, they talked about doing that, if, uh, God, it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Hmm. Have you watched the new League of Their Own? No. Is it good? It's excellent. Okay. I'm going to have excellent. to put that on the list. That's another thing where it, uh, movies, especially for us, it's like a uh, uh, nice thing when we pick shows is if we can find one like The Bear where it's like a 25-minute episode, we can knock one out in 25 minutes. To commit to a two-hour movie, it's like we haven't had two hours straight hanging out, my wife and I, in like three years. So those movies are harder to come by. I mean, maybe you're at the shortened games this year. Maybe you'll be That's home on a reasonable, more reasonable hour. And if get, she wasn't and in bed by like 8.30, then it may make a difference. But <laughs> she's in bed. The, the running joke in our house is, we'll, uh, you know, if, if I'm off on a given game or whatever and we get the game on, she never, ever knows who the relievers are. And the joke is because they come in after she's in bed. Like she's she's never up when they get to the bullpen. Oh, that's great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a treat. Yeah, of course, guys. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You can catch Joe calling Dodger games on Sportsnet LA and on Fox's Saturday baseball coverage. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us rate us. I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and they specifically said, if you like us, give us a five-star rating. I, I trust the discretion of our listeners. If you think we're worthy of a five-star rating, well, sure, give us a five-star well, rating. Yeah. We would appreciate it. Anyway, you can also leave a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Leslie mentioned several different times that if you have emails for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. But you can always just come say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. So, yeah, come say hi. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Go Dodgers! <laughs>